Hello, and welcome back to The Unlock. I'm Adam Delahanty, here as always with my friend Joey DeBruin. Joey, how are you? Pumped to be here. Me too. On The Unlock, the prompt, the mission is very simple. We decode how cool projects actually get built. We find the moments that really shaped a company or a project. And ideally, we come away with lessons that apply to anyone building anything. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors at Seed Club for making this happen. Our guest today, Thomas Scaria, founder and CEO at Lore, really one of my favorite projects in crypto. Lore helps groups and communities pool their resources online to do basically anything. We're going to dive into all that during the episode. This was a fun one. Joey, what was one of your takeaways from this episode? What stuck with me was that story of Thomas leaving his job just because he had this real conviction to build something, but not knowing what that thing is. And then the process of, of finding it and iterating and pivoting and just, you know, Thomas is such a great storyteller. And I, I think it was just really awesome to hear that because usually people will talk about how they were always bound to build this one particular product and it's just never true. So it's just great to you know, peel back the layers there. But he was honest about what he didn't know. And it was super refreshing. This was a fun one. Thomas, also a side note, probably the best dressed man in Web3. Just saying. Here's our episode with, with Thomas from Lore. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm so excited to welcome our guest, my friend, Thomas Scria, the co-founder of Lore. Hi, Joey. Hi, Thomas. How are we doing? Hey, pretty good. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me on the show. Joey, what's up? Excited to be what's here. What's up? Glad to have you. The last time I saw you, we were in the mountains of Idlewild, California. This is far less exciting, but it's still great to see you. I'd love to jump in with just the basics of of what Lore is. Tell us about the project. Yeah, Lore is the best place to group by NFTs. And we've also kind of started expanding to different use cases like crowdfunding ideas and creator fan clubs. Effectively, we've built this platform where you could spin up a community wallet, crowdfund it, and make transactions together. And that's led to all these amazing use cases. We work with communities kind of on the intersection of, of culture and crypto, like Friend of the Benefits, where we spend some time with them in Idlewild together, Adam, and Proof, Memeland, so on and so forth. Amazing. So, yeah, as we do on every show, we love to dive into some of the pivotal moments on your journey, both as a person and the journey of the company. We were just discussing a crucial moment right around launch. So maybe let's let's dial it back to to 2020. Can you give us a taste of the lore origin story? I know it actually wasn't even called lore back then, right? Yeah, that's right. It was initially called Prism. So to best explain this story, we have to actually go back to 2019 for a second. Because in 2019, I already was conceiving this concept of Prism. I was at Wire and I was leading growth there. I actually ran the Wire podcast, which is a great, great little growth hack, great way to meet people. And while I was there, I was mostly working on different kinds of fiat to crypto solutions for consumer crypto companies like OpenSea and Dharma. So we actually service these companies and help them build experiences like with OpenSea. We help them build the first way ever to buy a uh, NFT with a credit card. I had this bird's eye view into the consumer ecosystem, consumer crypto ecosystem, really like the first inning of it. And it came as kind of like a shock to me that there wasn't any community or like social oriented platforms, even though the entire space was so community oriented. So yeah. that was like kind of like the nugget, which which 
led to a lot of curiosity around like why these products don't exist. And, you know, I ended up spending a lot of time in that intersection. So by the end of 2019, October 31st, 2019, I actually left Wire full time to just like explore what's going on in that intersection. And it's kind of funny, Adam and, and Joey, like when you start calling yourself a founder, all these opportunities start kind of coming to you, right? And you're able to start having conversations with people. A couple of weeks after I started calling myself a founder of Stealth Startup, I was able to land conversations with both Olaf from Polychain and Fred Erson from Paradigm. And they were both ex excited about me starting this company and, and finally taking this like leap of faith out of wire to do it. And I, I came from like a credible background. So both of these uh, firms were looking to just like give us money and get involved early, right? Having those conversations was enough social signaling actually to recruit one of my best friends from childhood into joining as my 50-50 co-founder in this new company. And we got offers, we got an offer from Polychain to become entrepreneurs in residence, which sounds like another job, but basically it's like an incubator where you, you, you join Polychain, you work there for about four months and you get to advise and work with their, their portfolio companies and be kind of like an operating partner. But also you're getting to work on this intersection that you're, that you're really passionate about. And hopefully there's a company that comes out of it. So we joined Polychain in the beginning of Jan 2020, which is an auspicious time because little did we know, but the world was about to dramatically change. So by the time the COVID lockdowns kind of hit in San Francisco, the program that we were in went remote immediately. We were thinking it would be like two weeks, but of course, as we all know, it really, really dragged on. And we went from being like this hot company that was landing conversations with any VC we wanted to dial up to the VC's markets are completely just like shut down and VCs are not taking meetings. They're out of commission, right? They're just yeah. not doing anything. And we were like, holy shit, I think we're, we're kind of one of those founding teams that's full of shit because me and Shelby both come from very credible backgrounds, but we couldn't actually build the first version of the product. Just us two. Our plan was to raise money and hire people to do that, right? Shelby is a, a PhD computer scientist. So for him to build a consumer product is like getting a rocket scientist to build a car engine, right? And then I come from like a quant trading kind of background. So both of us are technical and we know how to code, but we don't know anything about like JavaScript and like building consumer applications. And there was no money. Like I tried, like I was pitching like as the, like the week that lockdowns were hitting and like not getting any traction. I ended up pitching for about two months and managed to secure $39,000 from Clay Robbins, who is now a VC at Slow, but used to be the head of growth at ZeroX Protocol, and Regan Bosman, who now runs Lattice Fund, but then was working at CoinList and was an uh, early in investor in OpenSea. I actually got introduced to them through through Devin from OpenSea, who is really great side-by-side -side kind of founder that was giving us like all sorts of great advice at the time. So anyways, we scraped together that money and we were like, okay, I guess you know, we're obsessed about this idea and I don't want to like give up two months into this, you know, regardless of what the world is kind of going through, like I, we need to stick this out. Right. So from April to October of that year, we 
taught ourselves how to code and build consumer products, how to design, how to think about like products in general, how to talk to users, like literally everything. We were just like grinding, working 16 hours a day, maybe seven days a week to teach ourselves all of the basics to actually build the first version of this product. And what we ended up building was kind of, I don't know if, if y'all remember this, but there used to be this thing called DGen score where you can connect your wallet and it would basically spit out like a numerical score of like how involved you are in the Ethereum space and throw you up on a leaderboard. So we're basically building like the 2.0 version of that. So users connect their wallet. We give you a nice social profile. We give you way more fidelity into what you're doing on chain, how many good trades you've made and things like that and throw everyone on a leaderboard, right? And, you know, I guess like over four months of just grinding, like we figured out at least how to build like the first version of this product. And I think just learned a lot about, I, this is like one of the core values in the company these days is like, everyone needs to be able to do a job themselves before they make a hire. So for instance, I learned a lot about like design and front end and so forth. So when when it came time to like hire people in those seats, I kind of knew what like a good candidate looked like, right? I knew how to evaluate them. So anyways, we we built this and we actually were so zoned in that we like barely noticed that, you know, DeFi summer was going on. There's this whole kind of boom in shitcoin trading and people were punting stocks on Robinhood and largely that our thesis of of people like socially investing had kind of accelerated maybe a year or two in like even this, just those four months. Lift our head, head up and like investors are pretty excited about what we're building. We raised a pre-seed round in December 2020 with the Polychain involved in North Island Ventures who ended up becoming big shareholder and, you know, big initial partner. That's an amazing story. I'd love to ask you about, you kind of referenced the idea, you know, for the product, but I think it sounds like there was maybe some evolution to that. So when you left your job, you were founder at Stealth Product. Can you talk about like the evolution of the idea? Like, did you leave your previous job with that idea? It sounds like it wasn't fully formed. You did some time as an EIR. So talk about like, yeah, how that evolved from when you, you know, the moment you left your previous job to, you know, through that story that you just described. So we were just excited about this emergent category of social investing and we were square in the idea maze right so we were exploring everything that had worked in the past even talking to different teams like kind of building in that intersection different founders who have gone and and, and failed in that intersection so we were looking at, at things like eToro for instance right at this time set protocol actually which is now kind of a cornerstone of, of DeFi, had a social trading product i forget what it was called slipping my mind now, but basically allowed anyone to start a fund on chain and, you know, they could they could buy and sell tokens and other people are basically copy trading them when they invest in that fund. I remember going through like three or four different initial products, even while at Polychain. How we were going through it was by building different kinds of mockups on Figma and just putting them in front of users and seeing how they kind of responded to it. We invented this kind of like trading game where you would basically like plug in all your account, all your centralized exchange accounts on Coinbase, Binance, and so on and so forth. And every week, 
you know, we would determine who has the best performance for that week. So we built something like that. And then we built the same thing, but on Ethereum for, for DeFi. There was another like copy trading kind of idea that we were talking around for a while. Same sort of thing as that protocol, really, like it would have been directly competitive. We were tossing that around. And I don't know, this is like such a interesting time in your founding journey because we were naive and confident, right? Which is a which is a very powerful combo if you're trying to be a, a founder trying to just get off the ground, right? And only later did we realize that we were not like evaluating these ideas in a holistic enough sense, like, okay, what's the what's the potential market size? How do you think this is going to evolve? What kind of products do you run into in the future? You know, what kind of team do you need to execute on the go to market plan? Like, what is the go to market plan for this idea? How does it differentiate from competitors? Things, things like that, right? So I don't think we were looking at everything as holistically as we could have. But we certainly like looked at a lot of things. So, so what gave you the confidence then to, or I guess maybe a better question is, why did you leave your, your previous job? Was it because you, you knew you could build something yourself and you knew that you could figure it out or that you had some feeling, maybe it wasn't fully formed that there was, you know, the something, you know, in social investing or something that you needed to build? Like, there's no right answer, but I'm just curious, like, what were, what were your motivations when you made that big decision? I think I wanted to start a company as soon as I kind of understood what the concept of starting a company was. I'm an immigrant from India, right? I am quite literally living the American dream right now. I remember when I was like 17 or 18, I I got obsessed with financial markets. And there was a lot of different articles I was reading in like the Wall Street Journal and The Economist about all these cowboy hedge fund managers that are making uh, a lot of money. And th- they were they were basically like creating financial drama that ended up becoming like hit news pieces and things like that. And I was like, I want that to be like my life, right? I'm, I want to start the next fund that is really going to like change financial markets and, and approach it from a different way that, that people are going to like write stories about. And I don't know, like why I even really want to do that. I think it does go back to like something about being an immigrant and just, just like, I don't know. I was also the first foreign son in the entire generation, which in India, I think there's just like a lot of not pressure, but like people are always telling you like, oh, you're, you're it. Like you're going to take us to the next, next level kind of thing. So it was just kind of like hype building around, around me. And, and I felt like it was like my duty to kind of like start something. Like if I'm in America and have this opportunity that a lot of my cousins and stuff in India do not get then why should I squander it like doing something not meaningful, right? So I always wanted to start something. It was more of a question of what. And as I got further into my career, I was really trying to find something in this intersection of engineering and markets because I graduated with an edge degree, but I was obsessed with markets. And it felt like I was going to join a quant fund and then you know start my own thing. And that's actually kind of how I discovered crypto is as I was researching different quantitative funds, I stumbled upon this one uh, fund in 2017 called Numeri, which was very ahead of its time. It's basically this new kind of uh, crypto fund that's run in a decentralized fashion by a collective of scientists like uh, around the world that are given a bunch of encrypted data and, and trying to figure out the patterns from it and a trade on it. So I was like, okay, there's a lot of interesting new kind of fund management primitives that are enabled by crypto uh, at the same time like polychain capital was getting started 
And I actually entered the crypto space thinking that I would start a fund in that ecosystem and, and started like researching different tokens and different kind of fund models. And, and that's how I got into the space. And I actually tried to start a crypto fund and raise money from some friends and family end of 2017. And then I was working on this other crypto idea with some people. And I was like, okay, I think I need to like join a crypto startup to really understand what's going on and like how to build a company and that was kind of the journey. Long story, but I just felt like I, it was my destiny to do it. And I had this itch to scratch as soon as I could kind of understand the concept of what a company is. And and here I am. You have always given me sort of these golden boy vibes, Thomas. So I'm not surprised. Also, how many of your how many of your distant uncles and cousins from India are, um, are currently on the lower cap table? That's what I want to know. On the lower cap table? They make the cut? No. They're not on the cap table. Not. I told myself that I would not let friends or family invest uh, into lore until the Series A, because yeah. I know, you know, obviously I'm very passionate about this, but I know how this game works from a probabilistic standpoint, right? 80% of founders don't actually end up building a product from pre-seed to seed, and then another 80% get cut off from product market fit to business model to get to Series A. So I was like, I need to get to Series A, and I think like the odds are pretty good. I have one more question on this intro story, and then maybe we move to like the inflection point thing. But I guess what I wanted to get at with the founding story is, okay, it's DeFi summer, it's 2020, you and your founder are just sort of hacking this thing together. Was there any moment of note where things were really, really about to fall apart? Or you sort of picked up your head and you said, what are we actually doing here? Can you paint that picture a little bit deeper for us? Those kind of what what are we doing here feelings uh, were not as present at that time. I'm sure I felt it, right? I But I really can't recall feeling that. Those kind of feelings started happening when we hit fa- failures like more more recently, like year three and stuff, right? Year one is is like, oh my God, I'm a founder. Like, this is so cool. I'm learning so much. You're in the honeymoon phase. And... That is kind of what I just said there is kind of like my barometer for like how well things are going, right? Is like, is this opportunity uh, something where I am learning faster than any other opportunity I could get right now, right? And if the answer is yes, which it has been consistently since we started the company, then we're in a good spot, right? And I definitely remember feeling that like in 2020. I just like, hey, I'm learning how to code uh, and build consumer products for a first time design, like all this crazy stuff. And even though like, you know, we only have 39K to split <laughs> between us and make rent and stuff like that. I was very, very kind of happy just, yeah. just like being in that seat. Of all those new skills you learned, was there one that you're that really surprised you? Like, wow, I love this and I'm pretty good at it. I have a guess. Yeah. What's your guess, Adam? My guess is that you love design. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I love the design aspect. <laughs> and especially brand design is something I get really, really excited about. Brand design and product design is like art, art to science, right? So uh, I, I think I like the brand side a lot more and the storytelling side quite a bit. And the product design side, I tell myself, like, if, if this is where it all, like, kind of blow up and I need to, like, what I'd probably do is like just spend time thinking about like which company I want to start next, but then probably perfecting like a skill set that I can like really bring to the table that's purely on the building side. And I was like, okay, should I teach myself to be a better backend dev or front end dev or design? Definitely product design. 
I think there's a lot of power in putting together a Figma prototype that you can like get in front of users and get like a lot of great feedback in. Great UI UX is I think can make it make a break consumer product. What was your process for learning design at that time? And I guess the subsequent question is, how are you institutionalizing this in your culture? Sounds like when people join Lore, you, you know, there's a vibe of like, hey, if you don't know how to do X, you're just going to learn it, and then you know that's going to be step one before you can hire someone. What have you learned about that process, and how do you kind of build it into your company now? So we've kind of fallen off the wagon here from this habit, but. Every week earlier this year, we were as for the, for the growth team, at least, right? That's, that's the team I lead right now. So it's basically myself, a growth manager named Gunjin, and then a community manager named Martin. And then Shelby, my co-founder, comes in as kind of as needed. And we all registered for Reforge, which is a place where you learn growth hacking business as a startup founder or a startup employee or, or tech employee. We all registered for, for Reforge and I put together like a, a kind of a schedule and itinerary, a syllabus, if you will, for us to, us to cover as a team. And then every week we would, you know, do our required reading and take our notes and stuff like that. And at the end of the week, we would kind of like jam on what we just learned and how it applies to the company today. And we went through a few courses on, on Reforge doing that. So that's been a big part of how. We've been growing kind of together as a team on on these you know skill sets that maybe maybe we're you know all not kind of uh, really great at. I definitely want to bring that back. I think we've kind of fallen out of habit with going through the preforged materials. What we do today, when I sense that there is like a gap in kind of like learning for within the team more broadly. So, for instance, earlier this week, uh, a gap that I sense is like we don't know the Twitter algo well enough when we're putting out marketing materials on Twitter. So what we've assigned Martin for this week is to do a bunch of research on the Twitter algo, produce a doc, and then set up a 30-minute meeting with the rest of the growth team to share learnings. So I think like we'll we'll carve out little little segments that we want to learn more about and then assign it to someone and they're responsible for a presentation. So it's a bit of like what I was establishing with the Reforge earlier this year, decentralizing it a little bit. So Let's, let's fast forward for a moment, Thomas. You're building this thing. It's a bit of a Web 2.5 play, but there's an inflection point that brought us to what Lore is today. So walk us through what was happening during that time and how that transition came about. Yep. So from the whole polychain initial pre-seed round era, that was end of 2020. In 2021, we spent a lot of our time hiring really great talent and building Prism for scale, right? So it started out as this way to connect wallet and get your DGEN score 2.0 and share it on a leaderboard and things like that. And a lot of the ethos remained the same, but we built a bit more of like a social network around that. So not only are you connecting wallet to see what you're doing on chain and get kind of like graded on it, you're creating a social profile as well. And then other people are creating social profiles and you can you can follow them and get get a feed of what your friends are doing on chain, what influencers are doing on chain. One thing we did really well that a lot of our lookalikes didn't is we actually scraped all of Twitter and people were changing their handles to dot ETH and stuff, ENS handles at the time. And we were able to take like their their wallets and their Twitter profiles and create a social profile even before they ever connected a wallet on war. So 
all of a sudden, like there was this kind of like rich kind of data set on lore and all these cool people you can follow, even if they're not on lore. So very quickly, we actually grew from maybe 2000 people using the application monthly to 50,000 people uh, using the application monthly to follow their friends and, you know, all these profiles that we've created by the end of 2021. We also introduced NFTs during that time. The NFT collector base, like that audience that was trading NFTs, doing NFT things, they were much more social than the ERC-20 token people. So we built some features to accommodate them as well. And the company is doing amazing, right? And of course, there's some pain points around hiring. And I think like I was running product at this time and Shelby hadn't stepped up to be CPO. There's definitely some pains over that because, you know, I, I was obviously doing things and marketing and stuff. And I think product management wasn't getting the attention that it really deserved. But like overall performance was great, right? And then uh, a lot of VCs were asking us to go fundraise and throwing out ridiculous valuations like like 120 mil post money for leading your Series A, right? From random VC or whatever, even really well-known ones. And But then like I had this like deep kind of unsatisfaction with what we built. The thesis had accelerated very fast, right? We blinked and social investing is kind of the norm. Right. Thanks to thanks to just COVID and uh, all that stuff. And the thesis is accelerated. And there are all these new crypto primitives now, too, like NFTs and DAOs, which we did not pay enough attention to. And our ideas started becoming we're in this like competitive kind of clusterfuck where every Facebook engineer that just like got excited about crypto looks at the blockchains as like this open data API and basically tries to build like a clone of what we're doing. Right. And then there are other more mature startups like Context and stuff that were doing this. And then I remember Rainbow was like trying to add uh, social features and stuff too. And then at the same time, Web2 Social was doing crypto things. Like Twitter introduced the concept of of, of changing your profile picture to an NFT that, that you owned. So, and and like, I was just like, you know, looking at all this cool shit that was happening in DAOs and NFTs and was like, oh, I don't know if we're, if what we're doing is kind of crazy enough to really, really make a difference. It's not differentiated enough because we're in this like competitive, competitive crosshairs of kind of many companies. And we just weren't doing shit that we love with our friends. And it, it turned from like unsatisfaction to basically like borderline depression where I was like, okay, things need to like seriously change about the direction of the product. Or I don't know if I can stay excited. And we we started like zooming into like what Web3 social really means, right? What are consumer experiences that can be enabled by crypto that could just not be enabled by traditional financial rails and, and Web2? And there was this kind of concept of like, of multiplayer crypto of where you can, you know, of course, like pull together money with your friends in a shared wallet and buy things together. And as we started looking closely into that concept, we realized that it wasn't just about like buying an NFT. And it wasn't just about financial upside. It was about these groups kind of expressing this new formed identity that they just formed that is an amalgamation of all the individual's identity and like this new kind of brand that they're creating. And people weren't just like buying the NFTs for financial upside. It was they were trying to like use them together. So the utility aspect was interesting. 
And it felt like a lot of the products at the time that were trying to do this were missing some key components like continuity of the group on party bit, for example, the zombie punk moment just happened when we were looking at this, which is pretty viral. We looked at that and we're like, this is really cool. And one time kind of crowdfund to buy the zombie punk and everyone changed their profile picture to the zombie punk. But there wasn't any continuity around that group. If this new brand was kind of formed, what are they going to do next, right? Are they going to buy another NFT? Are they going to create another NFT? And then since it's like a group of strangers, it doesn't didn't feel like there was enough kind of connection built up to do anything. So we realized there's this interesting kind of spot in the market for us where we can build more of a simple group wallet kind of framework where groups can buy multiple NFTs. They can also add more people to the story as they build out their brand and and really become like this on-chain collective. And that ended up leading to a lot of serious discussions with the team and me just being kind of honest about like how I felt about the original product and you know, where I'm spending a lot of my creative energy is this whole different space. And the team was surprisingly very supportive because they're like, hey, like we joined this team to do crypto things. And yeah, the old product is not crypto enough. And we're also getting pretty excited about this new direction. And one thing led to another and we decided to sunset the old product entirely and build an MVP for this new group wallet product with, at the time we made the decision, maybe eight, nine months of runway left. And then we launched the product with about six months of runway uh, left. And that launch is probably the best launch we ever had, mostly because it was the one last bullet kind of remaining in our chamber and we had to make it great or it was, it was death, right? And we're all just very, very passionate about this idea. And it was kind of like a refounding of the team in a sense too, because all, all the team members at the time were so involved in this new product. It was like, they were also founders in a sense and everyone was just so bought in. Yeah, so that's the story of the pivot and the, and the best launch we ever had. I'm curious, I've I, I resonated a lot with that story. I'm curious at the moment, you mentioned like, you just weren't excited, right? So you had this feeling that it just wasn't getting you out of bed in the morning, what you're doing. How much of what kind of like what, how you talk about it now is kind of like hindsight. Like when you went to the team the first time, did you have all the words for like, Hey, I, you know, I'm seeing this stuff with, with DAOs and with social investing and there's a gap in the market, you know, for these kinds of things, like, or was it really like, you know, Hey guys, just not, I don't know. There's something that doesn't feel right. How well-formed were your ideas when you kind of first serviced them to the, to the team? With my co-founder, it's much more the latter. It's just like, you know, we can just get down into feelings and vibes and just be like, hey, I think like something deep in my gut is telling me that what we're doing is right now looks great. And like, you know, everything's going up into the right, but we're, we're headed off a cliff in a sense. But with the team, I try to keep things a little bit more buttoned up, mostly because they look to me as and, and my co-founder as, as leaders, right? And I think there definitely is a degree of like, okay, we should be transparent and, you know, be vulnerable at times. But I, at, at the same time, I was looking at different ideas as well. So I didn't want to go in with four different directions and the, to, to a team that's so zoomed in on building new features for this product that's working. And I think it would just kind of catch, catch them a little bit off guard. I can imagine one-on-one conversations. And especially now, you know, then we had just 
just some of these team members are maybe a few months into their their jobs at Prism, right? So I think the relationships just weren't quite there yet for me to be as vulnerable as I could be today and as vulnerable as I was to my co-founder at the time. And how long, I mean, I guess, you know, anyone who's been building on a team knows that there's like this moment of you're living like multiple lives, right? Where maybe you and your co-founder are starting to have very vulnerable conversations about other things that you're thinking about or just your kind of motivation levels. But meanwhile, you're, you're, you know, you need to kind of show up differently for the rest of the org until you have some clarity about making a pivot or making a big change. So how long were you kind of in that moment? That's a really good question. So let's see the feelings that something was off and that we needed to pivot to something more crypto native, probably two to three months until we really talked to the team about the the plan and moving forward. I think as soon as I think something's off, maybe a week, I let it fester at most. And then I tell my co-founder for sure. Yeah. But we're, we're like very, very transparent with each other. You know, we're, I think that's like the best part about working with Shelby is like, we go way back, right? Like we were, you know, we're kind of different kinds of dorks, but we, we were both like these huge nerds that grew up together in, in, in the Bay Area, because we have like that kind of shared bond and relationship for so many years. It's just like very, very easy to kind of communicate and break down walls and like call each other out when things are not working or, you know, someone someone is slightly more unmotivated than the other for some reason and just have those honest conversations. I don't let things like kind of fester with, with Shelby, but with the team, I think I, I'd like to put the best foot forward possible. So it sounds like one of the ways that you find something new is by following your interests and just getting excited about something. And I guess as founders, you, you have to spend 110% of your energy on the current thing, just like keeping it alive, making, moving it forward. So how, how do you think about like giving yourself space to explore, right? Like to right now, you're not in that moment that you were before, like you're, you're waking up every day feeling stoked about what you're building, right? So that's good. But maybe there's something else. Maybe there's a pivot, you know, in the future, because there's just something you latch onto that's incredible. So do you have a process, a way of thinking about like giving yourself space to explore? Yeah. I think it it does ebb and flow. So when these new kind of primitives pop up, like like NounsDAO, for example, is probably it's not recent by any means, but it's probably like one of the core primitives and movements and, and internet kind of things that happened that have product market fit and and continue to be a meme, right? So when those things kind of happen, I I love to just like dig into why that's happening you know, why it happened in the uh, first place. Like, is this an iteration of something old or is this a, a whole new thing that did not ex exist before? So for instance, like there's a new version of the ICO, like every bull market, right? So that's like a kind of a continuous thing that happens and I'm sure it'll happen again. But then there's absolutely net new things that kind of blow my mind, right? And when those net new things happen, I do tend to look deeply into what's happening there and see if there's kind of nuggets for us to extract and adapt into our product or even like change kind of our product in entirety. So something like that did happen recently. And when that happens, like I, I'm very, I get very focused on making that iteration because now that I've gone through this, these cycles, like so many times, like it can be existential very, very quickly. That's how quickly this space moves, right? 
I have so many examples of like us being slightly late to things and just like missing uh, a big bunch of growth or, or like completely, you know, it can even be company killing if you miss something there. So it, to- it totally ebbs and flows. But when something captures my attention and I, and I feel it in my gut that this is going to be material for the company, then I'm like pretty obsessed with it. And of course, I need to run the company and like the current thing needs to happen. But I do spend a lot of time like researching what's going on. Maybe it's nice to close out with some more sort of big picture questions. One for you, Thomas, is like, you were jazzed when you got to call yourself a founder, right? You quit the job. It's October, November of 2019. You had a vision of what it meant to be an entrepreneur and build something during that time. And now it's been a couple years, right? When you actually take stock of what this journey has been like, compared to maybe what your fantasy was. How do those things compare? What's the difference between the kind of the fantasy and the reality? Can you reflect on that? I think the fantasy that I kept telling myself is that it's purely skill. And you could basically outcompete, you could basically spend more time, dedicate yourself more. And that is going to result in certainty of your startup being successful. What I drastically underestimated is the amount of luck that kind of goes into many startups being successful. It is about being in the right place at the right time over and over again, right? For, for some of these, you know, success stories that we hear about. I think that's been a kind of a change in my thinking. And, you know, I'm kind of stoic when it comes to those kind of notions where I, I just focus on like what's in my control and give myself credit for trying trying my best. And of course, I got to try my best and keep doing what, what I do. But at the end of the day, like things are going to happen that are completely out of my control that ultimately end up either being bad luck or good luck for, for the startup. And I think that's just going to be a huge part of our success for the lore of the company. I love that. We did a great tour of your journey, Thomas. I mean, I'm just personally honored that I think we first probably talked in the fall of 2021. And we've stayed in touch and I've, I've just had a window into this journey with you and I've helped you at a couple points. And so just wanted to say, you know, appreciate the friendship, appreciate just being able to witness the lore story from close up. You know, it's been fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for following along and sticking along too. I think the one thing we're going to be really good at doing is just sticking through, right. And just, just being persistent. So I don't know how successful we're going to ultimately become, but we're definitely going to be trying really, really hard to make it happen. So hopefully we get to do this again and hear about some more crazy near-death experiences that we go through. Maybe less maybe less close to death. If I called you one of the best-dressed men in Web3, would you fight back or would you admit that it's true? I'd admit it's true. It's a hobby and passion of mine. I only pursue hobbies that I can be, you know, good at and be recognized for. <laughs> and it's a weird way to think about hobbies, but I'm just a hyper competitive kind of person in a sense. People brought their best to FWB and then oh, yeah. they go home and they wear plain, plain white t shirts. You, though, you keep it going. I know it. It's part of my founder meme. Every founder needs a meme. There we go. Thanks for jamming with us, Thomas. Great to see you. Appreciate you. Yeah, for sure. Okay, guys, thanks for listening. And thanks, as always, to Seed Club for sponsoring the Unlock and making this happen. If you like what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe and follow both the Unlock, 
Joey and I on Twitter. We will see you next time. Thanks, friends.